Okay, folks, welcome to the Complexity Premier Podcast. I'm your co-host, Chris Joy, and I'm joined by Yingyi and Chen, and we both work with Coolabar Capital Investments. Coolabar is a global fixed income manager, and we're responsible for running $7.6 billion in funds under management. We record this podcast once a month, and the purpose of the podcast is to unpack tricky financial market issues of the day. So, team, it's the 25th of September. You've got Chris and Yingers again on the Complexity Premier Podcast. I'm a portfolio manager at Coolabar. Yingers is a portfolio management director. That means she's much more important than me. And there's so much to talk about. A lot's happened in September. We've had further significant increases in bond yields. So I want to talk about August and September because we haven't published a podcast for some time. Particularly want to focus on, obviously, recent performance to dive into the details of what's driving portfolios. And I want to start by also really interrogating APRA's recent statements on the ASX hybrid market. Thanks, Chris. I'm not sure that I'm more important than you in the context of Coolabar. Um, but anyhow, look, let's come back to August and September shortly. But before we do, can you give us a summary of the news about APRA's new discussion paper on ways to improve the functioning of the hybrids market? Well, that's uh, very modest of you, Yingers, but the truth is I'm just one very small cog uh, in our 38-person executive team. There are 12 traders and 12 analysts, and my mission is to hire many people who are a lot smarter than I am and a lot more capable and just watch them execute as brilliantly as they do all day, every day. So yeah, APRA published this really interesting discussion paper. And let's just start by saying that it was a good paper, raised some interesting issues, I think made some constructive recommendations around reform opportunities. So there's a lot of positive, I think, idea generation that one could take from the paper. It is a very important paper because it could have significant implications for the hybrid market. And so I think it's worthwhile diving into it. So let's start with the positives, things that we agreed with. You know, the first was that APRA had proposed that potentially there was merit in increasing the equity trigger level at which hybrids switch into ordinary shares. So for those who don't remember, hybrids sit between ordinary equity, the stocks that you trade on the ASX, and subordinated bank bonds or tier two bonds, some of which are also listed on the ASX or have been listed on the ASX in the past, in the bank's capital structure. So you start with equity at the bottom, then you have hybrids, then you have T2 bonds, next is senior unsecured bonds, followed by deposits. And then actually above deposits, we have senior secured bonds known as covered bonds. So banks are quite different to companies like a Telstra, which would issue just equity and senior debt. Bank capital structures are much more complex. In fact, the name of this podcast, the Complexity Premier podcast, really derives from Coolbar's focus on trying to extract excess returns or alpha by analyzing different parts of a bank's capital structure. Now, of course, hybrids are not just issued by banks. APRA regulates both banks and insurers, so they're issued by both, the likes of obviously the big four banks, and then folks like Suncorp, IAG, QBE, and others. And in the case of hybrids, one thing that was introduced more aggressively under something called the Basel III reforms, which are basically regulations that APRA embraced and implemented in 2013, was a higher equity trigger threshold for hybrids to get converted into ordinary shares. That threshold was lifted to 5.125%, and that is known as the CET1 or common equity T1 capital trigger threshold. So if CBA's CET1 ratio, that is its equity divided by its risk-weighted assets, falls from 12.2% currently down to 5.125%, subject to some detailed rules about how this works, what basically happens is the hybrids get converted into equity. They become ordinary shares. And by doing so, the core equity buffer of a bank is expanded at a time when it needs more equity. Now, in uh, AT1 hybrids or additional tier one capital hybrids and the tier two subordinated bonds, the banks issue, there's another clause called a point of non-viability clause. And this means that if APRA were to ever declare a bank or insurer non-viable, basically say they're bust, then the hybrid would automatically get converted into equity. 
Again, giving the bank or insurer additional first-loss equity capital, CT1, at a time when they need it. It's not all bad for investors because, in theory, they might pick up really cheap equity. Now, one of the first proposals that APRA makes in this paper, which is just for discussion, is that maybe we should look at lifting the CT1 trigger level from 5 and one eighth percent to 7%. And it's quite common for banks around the world to have 7% triggers. APRA has recently done a lot of work adjusting the way the banks report their capital ratios such that they align more closely with peers overseas. And in addition, because of reforms that we really drove over the last decade and a half, you know, the four major banks have been forced to raise about $150 billion of extra equity capital. A little history in the GFC, I co-authored a letter calling for a new financial system inquiry into the banks published in the SMH and elsewhere. We termed it a son of Wallace financial system inquiry, Wallace being the last inquiry that was conducted in the late 1990s that actually led to the creation of APRA. And Wayne Swan did nothing about our calls at the time. I then wrote a speech for Joe Hockey a couple of years later calling for a son of Wallace financial system inquiry. Hockey delivered that speech as the shadow treasurer. And I co-authored with David Murray, the former CEO of CBA, the terms of reference for that inquiry, which were really focused on deleveraging bank balance sheets and forcing them to become less too big to fail and basically less risky. And then when Hockey was appointed treasurer to his great credit, he established the financial system inquiry. And that was actually led by John Lonsdale, at the secretariat level, who's now the chairman of APRA, and David Murray also uh, was the chair of the inquiry. And the key FSI recommendation was the banks build their equity capital buffers to unquestionably strong levels, which generated the $150 billion of equity capital drive that we discussed earlier. So CBA's CT1 ratio has gone from around 4.7% in 2007 to 12.2% today. And for hybrid holders, that's great news because the risk of them being automatically converted into equity if CBA's CT1 ratio falls to 5.125% has obviously fallen dramatically since the new so-called Basel III hybrids were introduced in 2013. Now, to be clear, APRA actually creates the hybrids. It designs them and it sets the terms and conditions and the banks can really just price them and they can also determine the maturity dates. Now, of course, hybrids don't actually have hard maturity dates. They're perpetual instruments that simply have optional call dates, call dates a repayment date, typically after years five, six, seven, or eight. And then if the securities are not called, they actually get automatically converted into bank shares two years after the call date being missed. So APRA's uh, idea was maybe we should increase the CT1 triggers from 5 and one eighth percent to 7% because these days, get a bank's equity down from 12.2% to 5 and one eighth, the bank would basically have to die. Now, what's interesting in this paper is APRA demarcates really clearly between two key things that we've belabored at Coolabar for you know, over a decade. And that's that hybrids are going concern capital. What, what that means is we want hybrids to play their loss absorbing role to serve as an equity buffer while the bank's still alive. And they argue this should be contrasted against T2 bonds or subordinated bonds that are gone concerned capital. What that means is you only need to convert a T2 bond into equity when the bank's already dead. And effectively you're going through a, a rapid resolution or a, an accelerated insolvency process. Now, mind you, the kind of claimed impetus for this discussion paper, we're less complimentary about, and we'll come back to this later, Ying, is, but APRA sort of cites Oh, if you look at the Credit Suisse case, the hybrids they claim were written off in resolution right at the end of the process, and they didn't work early enough. APRA is sort of trying to allege that the hybrids didn't act as going concern capital. I think very clearly alleging that. We would argue that's totally wrong and, and betrays a fundamental misunderstanding about what happened with Credit Suisse, which we'll come back to. The second example is, uh, you know, they cite the fact that in the case of Italian bank hybrids, the government actually came out and government guaranteed those hybrids. And they sort of make the point that maybe hybrids aren't working as we expected them to. In the case of the Credit Suisse drama in March this year, they said that Credit Suisse writing down its hybrids to zero very rapidly shut down the global AT1 market. And that's also totally wrong. We had almost $900 million of Aussie hybrids on the ASX trade in that same month. Uh, another half a billion traded the next month. And the next month after that, we had CBA very successfully launch a $1.55 billion hybrid issue that was actually priced on a relatively modest credit spread above the bank bill rate. So CBA priced at 300 over, which is actually inside 
the long-term historical range for hybrids of circa 325 to 350 over. While we'll return to this shortly, the notion that Credit Suisse's unilateral write-off as hybrids, which could never have happened in Australia, and they did all sorts of other crazy stuff, or the idea that the Italian government explicitly guaranteed its hybrids, I don't think any of this provides a powerful precedent for the suggestion that Aussie bank hybrids aren't working as they were designed to work. And moreover, we've got a ton of hard data showing that they've been incredibly liquid and well-traded by very sophisticated investors, specifically install investors like ourselves during these dislocations. So there's just a little bit of naivety there, but perfectly forgivable. APRA is not there at the coalface all day, every day, trading hundreds of millions of dollars worth of hybrids as we are. But the notion that now that the banks are running potentially 11 to 13% CT1 ratios, much higher than they have done in the past, that maybe we want hybrids to be bowed into equity or converted into equity at a higher CT1 threshold is something that we've said we support. Now, we obviously wouldn't support just unilaterally, retrospectively changing the rules of this $40 billion market to some you know, random policymaker thinks it's a good idea. And APRA has been very clear in saying it has no intention of doing this, as in it's not going to change the T's and C's of existing hybrids, nor could it. It'd be kind of litigated to within an inch of its life. But these would be changes that would be introduced over time. So just to digress a little here as well, I think APRA has to be really commended for how consultative and collaborative it's been in sketching out the vision for this process. It's asked for submissions on the 15th of November. It's then said it will meet with all stakeholders, following which it will draft up a amended prudential standard that governs the terms and conditions of hybrids. And it has said it will consult on that new standard in 2024, so next year. And certainly feedback from the banks is you know, they can see this being implemented in 2025 or thereafter. And what that will mean is that after the new standard comes into force, new hybrid issues will have to comply with it. In the meantime, it's all business as usual. Of course, the banks have seven different hybrid maturities coming up in 2024. It's quite a busy year. So one would expect all of those to be refinanced, as is the standard case. Now, we actually think that it's plausible you could actually lift the CT1 trigger to even higher levels. To be clear, by boosting the equity conversion trigger from 5 and 1 to 7%, you're very directly boosting the default risk on Aussie bank hybrids and insurer hybrids. This will likely lower their credit ratings. Now, major bank hybrids are currently triple B minus rated their investment grade. This would push them to sub-investment grade. And if that happened, that would definitely limit some institutional appetite for these securities. In Australia, there really aren't many high-yield investment buckets. It's not to say they can't grow. But that would be unambiguously an increase in the cost of these securities. So a higher capital trigger means higher probabilities of default, which means lower ratings, and all that together means wider credit spreads, so higher yields on these securities. Frankly, it's good for investors like ourselves. We want wider spreads because we can price this stuff, all things being equal, uh, but it's not good for the banks. They're going to have to pay more money to raise their capital. The next um, point that APRA made was they feel that potentially the Aussie banks have issued more hybrids than their peers overseas. And the banks disagree with this. They think APRA got their numbers wrong. So we'll wait and see, as they are the absolute experts on the international comparability of their capital ratios, we'll wait and see what comes to pass on that stuff. But currently APRA says you have to have a minimum of 1.5% of your risk-weighted assets in hybrids. APRA's chart in its report shows that the banks have been holding only a little bit more than this, so one and a half to two percent. It's not like they've been carrying massive excess buffers, and you know, you'd think 50 basis points would be a prudent buffer. But if APRA is worried about excess issuance, they could just redefine the target as a maximum, like the New Zealanders do. So they could say, need to hold a minimum one and a half percent, but no more than two and a half percent. Another point to note here is, you know, really what regulators should be doing is just forcing banks to hold more equity. Hybrids shouldn't exist. Banks should just have more equity, less leverage, and they'd be a hell of a lot safer. All the complexity that's introduced into their capital stack is because, you know, frankly, the regulators don't have the balls to just insist on much higher capital ratios. So I think APRA needs to have a little bit of humility when mining and grinding sometimes on these issues, particularly because they're not always right. And then secondly, these instruments are 100% an artifact of their own reluctance to just force banks to hold much more pure equity. Another Another point that Apple raises is, you know, can banks issue hybrids that kind of function as quasi-equity capital or going concern capital earlier in advance of a bank going bust? Now, this seems to be kind of related to the Credit Suisse collapse. Apple makes, I think, a fairly spurious argument that, oh, the hybrid should have been wearing losses earlier. But the truth is the actual collapse of Credit Suisse 
happened over a period of days. There wasn't actually anything in front of me wrong with this. Maybe Inez will talk about this more in a moment. But coming back to what APRA could actually do to make hybrids more functional as going concern capital, I mean, we have a couple of thoughts. The first is uh, APRA could sort of introduce a requirement that if it ever instructs a bank to raise capital, if it falls below in the major banks, their minimums of 10.25%, then if they don't remediate that shortfall within, say, three months, then that action, you could argue, should trigger an automatic conversion of 81 into equity. And that would be tantamount to further increasing the capital trigger from 7% to say 10.25%. There is some precedent for this. We see similar T's and C's in the Swiss legislation that's recently been updated to govern bank hybrids. APRA also talked a lot about banks not necessarily being prepared to stop paying coupons on hybrids, saying that they're discretionary coupons in the legal sense, and they're also non-cumulative. So if you miss them, you don't have to repay them. But I think the broader point here is perhaps APRA is not focused enough on the fact that banks are much more intent on paying equity dividends and we really haven't seen periods where banks have refused to pay equity dividends. If you miss a coupon repayment on a hybrid, there's a dividend stopper, which means you can't also make payments of equity dividends. But this is kind of thorny territory because one thing the Swiss did was invert the capital structure priorities, which was uh, really shocking for global investors and hadn't really been expected by anyone aside from perhaps ourselves, because uh, many years ago I wrote in the AFR and wrote in Livewire that APRA had approved hybrids issued by Genworth and ME Bank that didn't convert into equity. They just went straight to write-off. And when I, we asked those institutions why, they said, well, because our shareholders don't want to dilute down in this sort of event. So their shareholders expressly wanted higher-ranking hybrids and even tier two bonds get written off straight away to boost their equity capital without shareholders wearing any pain. And I predicted in the AFR and Livewire, and I privately wrote to APRA and said that we would face eventually a situation where shareholders would actively seek the preemptive writing off of hybrids to protect equity. And that's exactly what happened with Credit Suisse. Equity was relatively protected, whereas the hybrids were completely zeroed. So I think it's important that if APRA wants to focus on capital generation, hybrids are tiddlywinks compared to equity dividends, and potentially they just need to impose tougher requirements on the banks as to when they do and don't pay their equity dividends, noting that the biggest holders of bank shares are ultimately retail investors, which we'll come back to. What we don't want to see is a situation where APRA encourages banks to not pay coupons on hybrids, but lets them get away with somehow paying dividends on equity. You could have a situation where the banks miss a hybrid payment because of some sort of crisis, but that gets resolved. And then they, six months later, start paying equity dividends. We should probably look into that and ensure that if they're going to pay dividends and they've missed a hybrid payment, at the very least, the equity dividends need to be deducted proportionately by the you know, relative reduction in the annual hybrid payments, I would suggest. But I think the bigger observation we'd make is there are already really punitive provisions, which very few people are on top of in hybrid documents, which state that if a bank's CT1 ratio falls from 10.25% down to 8.8%, somewhere between those two point estimates, then 40% of all their earnings get escrowed such that they can't be used for equity dividends or hybrid payments. And then if a bank's equity ratio falls further, so down from 8.8% to I believe it's 7.4%, 60% of their earnings get escrowed. And if they go down from 7.4 to 5.9, it's 80% of their earnings and below 5.9, for the big banks, they can't pay anything. What that means really is once you drop below 8.8% in CET1 terms, uh, it's unlikely a bank's going to be paying dividends or you know, hybrid distributions. And that's already in the docs. So I think that meets APRA's needs of ensuring that hybrids can be loss absorbing well before a bank goes bust. The next issue APRA raised was the most problematic one. And that was the suggestion that basically hybrids are predominantly held by retail investors and it's harder to bail in retail investors because they're retail and presumably that sets some sort of higher emotional bar for APRA, which I think is preposterous. And then they cite the uh, UK regulator, the FSA, which many years ago banned the sale of, interestingly, both hybrids and also T2 bonds to retail. And APRA sort of says, well, maybe we should look at shifting hybrids to the OTC or over-the-counter domain by increasing the minimum parcel size from 100 bucks to $500,000. And all of this is inherently, I think, flawed. So the first point is that APRA doesn't mention anywhere in its main paper the fact 
that in late 21, ASIC changed all the rules on the distribution of hybrids and it introduced something called the design and distribution obligations, which basically shifted legal liability for a product issuer from the disclosure principle and therefore the customer to the issuer themselves who have to define the customer sophistication. And when they did this, the banks basically all universally, without exception, said, we're not issuing hybrids to retail investors. We're not going to roll that dice. We're going to limit them to only wholesale investors. So since late 21, the banks have completely overhauled their entire distribution practices. It's a real revolution for the industry. We saw it at the coalface just in the way advisors manage deals. And they very clearly say, this is for wholesale only, unless you happen to be a retail investor who goes out and gets a full statement of personal financial advice from their advisor, and that recommends buying the security. Now, APRA also completely ignores the fact that the industry, you know, all the brokers, all the advisors, all the banks, all the fund managers have literally spent the last 11 years educating relentlessly retail investors about all the T's and C's in hybrids. And I don't know anyone, I haven't spoken to anyone for years who's not aware that APRA can convert them into equity and that they convert into equity at a CT1 ratio of five and one eighth. So there's just been a huge amount of time and effort and money expended educating brokers, advisors, and distributors on their disclosure and education obligations, but also on consumers and investors themselves directly through their advisors and brokers and also through the media. Now, ironically, when APRA's analysis is presented, they actually say, that half of all hybrids appear to be held by wholesale investors and half appear to be held by retail investors. The key point is the DDO laws were only introduced in late 21, and that's been our experience. The vast majority of all hybrid investors these days are very knowledgeable and sophisticated and wholesale, not retail. And I think that's been a very healthy shift in the dynamic and the, the knowledge pool applied to this opportunity. Furthermore, the federal government, partly based on our nudging, and we commissioned and you do research on the Corporations Act tests that determine who is a wholesale and who is a retail investor. And those tests are based on uh, the person's income. You've got to have at least 250K and all their assets. You've got to have at least 2.5 million. But you know, ANU argued these tests were set all the way back more than 20 years ago in 2002. And since that time, you've had massive wage inflation, massive asset price inflation. So clearly the number of people or the proportion of people intended to be captured by the existing wholesale investor definition, those who had two and a half million of assets in 2002, very, very different to those who meet those tests in 2023, or the 250K income test. And so my understanding is all those tests will be very much toughened up and go a long way to mitigating the risk of retail investors being uh, involved. There is a more fundamental apprehension here, which is this huge inconsistency or paradox or incongruity, where on the one hand, APRA has absolutely no problem with mums and dads and retail investors owning and trading bank shares, which are 15 to 20 times leverage, which have historically more than three times the volatility of hybrids, which sit lower in the capital structure than hybrids, which get diluted down in value when hybrids get converted into equity. So they're exposed to all those same equity conversion risks because they directly suffer as a result of them. So I think our biggest concern, however, on this wholesale retail front is that there's this huge inconsistency, this tremendous paradox in APRA's logic. On the one hand, they're clearly very happy with mums and dads and naive retail investors owning as much as they want of 15 to 16 times leveraged bank equities, which have three times the volatility of hybrids, which have had much bigger drawdowns than hybrids in shocks like the GFC or March 2020, which get directly diluted down by hybrids on any of these optional conversion events. So APRA has no problem with hunters holding massively more complex and uncertain and difficult to price bank equities, but they do want to deny mums and dads accessing safer, lower volatility, fully investment grade rated hybrids. It makes absolutely no sense. What APRA is really saying here is that they just don't have the regulatory balls to do their job and enforce the terms and conditions that the entire industry has spent a decade drumming into the heads of investors that are the key risks to these securities. And what makes it even more preposterous is that if there was ever any doubt there were any risks, we have had call dates missed here in Australia. So repayment dates deferred. We saw it in 2020 from Challenger and Genworth. We've seen one of the biggest banks in the world completely write off their hybrids entirely ahead of equity. Obviously, we've also seen the failure of 
smaller regional banks in the US. So I think you're really hard pressed to argue that retail don't understand these securities and Apple should just grow the hell up and accept its regulatory obligation that uh, it needs to enforce these terms and conditions as and when required, but only as and when required. I mean, APRA did have a bit of a, an own goal in the tier two market some time ago when what should have been a private letter from APRA to the banks was made a public letter around expectations of the repayment of tier two bonds, which basically blew up the tier two market for a period of time and made Aussie tier two the most expensive tier two on the planet rating adjusted. And of course, the banks couldn't issue any. All of it was completely unnecessary. So APRA is the world's best banking regulator. They all work really hard. I think they're very, very smart uh, men and women. But obviously, none of us are perfect. And these are imperfections that you kind of say into sight in their communications and decision-making processes. So, Chris, do you think that APRA's use of the Credit Suisse failure as an excuse to review Aussie bank hybrids makes sense? Uh, none at all. And I find it amazing to kind of think about their interpretation of that event. You know, we were shorting credits with senior bonds in 2022. So we were targeting you know, that perceived vulnerability. Our credit analysts put a blanket ban on long exposures to any credits with securities in May 2021. And I sent five emails to Twiggy Forest advisor in February 21 telling him to pull Twiggy's money from the Credit Suisse private bank. So we're all over the issues with Credit Suisse vis-a-vis Greensill and their prime broking businesses. And we just thought that Credit Suisse was a very poorly run bank that needed to undertake a lot of remediation reforms, which to their credit, they started doing over 21, 22 and 23. APRA is telling the story is, oh, well, the hybrids only got written off within days of the bank being sold to UBS. Ipso facto, the hybrids actually only absorbed losses in resolution and they should have done so earlier. In practice, the opposite of everything that APRA thinks is true. We predicted the Credit Suisse dramas ahead of time. We advised clients that Credit Suisse would be targeted after the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank. We also predicted that Deutsche would be targeted and we didn't participate in any of these trades because we thought it was just blatant market manipulation. And what certain hedge funds were trying to do very successfully with seed media stories about the coming collapse of the Credit Suisses and the Deutsches and then motivate the advent of what we call these high-velocity digital deposit runs. Now, the first time anyone had ever seen one was Silicon Valley Bank, which lost 42 billion US of deposits on a single day. And even though the internet existed prior to 2008, we'd never seen fully digitized banking in a crisis before. So rather than people queuing outside Northern Rock, they could just click their mouse, tap on the keyboard and withdraw all their cash instantaneously. And because banks run big mismatches between the tenor or length of their liabilities, which are their deposits, and the 10, 20, 30 year loans they make with this money, they can face inherent solvency risks if you get massive exoduses of cash. So it happened with SVB. Uh, Chris Hooks had been ailing for years. The hedges started seeing these media articles about you know, the Saudi National Bank not wanting to recapitalize Credit Suisse, even though they've publicly stated many times before that they couldn't increase their shareholding in CS beyond nine point something percent. That was absolutely old news. I think Bloomberg ran the story and the share price collapsed like 30% on the day. And for comparatively small amounts of money, the hedges would be shorting their credit default swaps. And you could literally spend 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 million bucks and move them massively. And the investment banks were all shorting their CDS and their bonds. And the hedges were hammering the equities. And so everyone saw Credit Suisse's share price in free fall, assumed there was something fundamentally wrong, which there wasn't. And this triggered this speculative digital deposit run. And all the Swiss authorities had to do on that last week was to stand up and say, CS's deposits are government guaranteed, as they actually were, but they didn't. We saw after the failure of SVB that the US government came out and said all deposit holders will be protected. And because they dithered, Credit Suisse was subject to massive outflows of deposits, really on speculative nothingness, which forced the Swiss authorities to engineer this rapid fire sale to UBS, which remarkably happened over a weekend. If you have a speculative attack on Credit Suisse, its balance sheet's fine. It's not great, but there's something fundamentally wrong with it. If the Swiss authorities had made it clear that the deposits were guaranteed, Credit Suisse would never have failed. It'd just be another second-tier investment bank. Instead, they're forced to do the shotgun marriage with UBS. And as we had predicted years ago, what a Credit Suisse shell to say, oh, don't wipe out equity. Why don't you just write down the hybrids? So there was, I think, a 16 billion Swiss franc recapitalization of Credit Suisse equity through the write down of the hybrids. That all became equity in Credit Suisse. Yes, equity was hammered just because of the price action that 
the sis of the time. But bizarrely, shareholders were actually able to retain value through the merger. UBS share prices we expected has performed brilliantly. And shareholders have done since consequently quite well. Whereas high-ranking hybrid holders, who are only meant to wear losses when equity is wiped out, were actually the first loss piece that protected equity. So this is a total inversion of the capital structure rankings or priorities or hierarchy. Basel three rules are designed to enshrine and protect. But in that emergency, the Swiss forgot that and were clearly hoodwinked by equity. And ironically, for those people at APRA who are listening to this, I'm sure there's quite a few, uh, Earth to APRA, the news is actually that Credit Suisse hybrids acted incredibly quickly as a very, very rapid source of going concern capital to recapitalize the entire bank in one fell swoop because they could be written off instantaneously. And that's what happened. They were actually used highly inappropriately and, and directly in conflict with the requirements of the Basel III regulations and you know, equity effectively stole money off the hybrid holders, which is why the hybrid holders are now suing the Swiss government as they should and try and recover value, as I hope they do. And the second point we mentioned earlier, Ying, is, is you know, the APRA report sort of says, oh, the Credit Suisse um, you know, crisis in March 23 uh, shut down the 81 market, the hybrid market. Absolute bollocks. European hybrids got hammered, but Aussie hybrids, I think we ended the month down only about 0.5 to 1%. HBRD, of course, outperformed broader hybrid indices. And we run a an ETF, HBRD. It's a full capital structure. ETF that invests in senior bonds, T2 bonds, hybrids and cash, even covered bonds. Right now, we only have about 45% of HBRD in major bank hybrids. We have about 45% of T2 bonds and about 10% in senior and cash. But the key point is that we just ran the numbers when we saw the APRA report and estimated that on the ASX, no less than almost $900 million of Aussie bank hybrids traded in a very orderly fashion in the month of March 23 when credits was collapsed. Another $500 million traded in April 23. And literally within a month and a half of Credit Suisse, CBA had launched the first major bank primary issue for the year. So a $1.55 billion hybrid that, as I mentioned, only priced at 300 over BBSW. So tight of historical levels. So just absolute BS to say that the hybrid market was shut down and wasn't functioning and to use that as an excuse to kind of review the Aussie hybrid market. The Aussie hybrid market did brilliantly. And it's interesting, uh, APRA wouldn't know this and very few people would, but the worst month ever for hybrids in history was March 2020. So we had five-year hybrid spreads blow out from 270 other bank bills to 850 other bank bills, much further than they went during the GFC. In that month of March 2020, all the Aussie corporate bond funds were frozen. There was zero liquidity in the corporate bond market. Like you could basically trade next to nothing. And yet, remarkably, on the ASX, there was $1.22 billion of bank hybrids and insurer hybrids that traded functionally. Yes, spreads went crazy, but there were a ton of institutional investors like myself and other super funds that were wading into the breach. And the beauty of the ASX is it's a lit transparent exchange, and it gives people the confidence to trade during these distress dislocations. That's why we saw almost a billion trade in March 23, and we saw 1.22 billion trade in uh, March 2020. To be clear, I'm very confident that that trading in March 2020 in the hybrid market was bigger than all the trades in the OTC corporate bond market in Australia. And as an aside, our ETF, HBRD, was the only credit ETF on the planet that didn't trade at a material discount to its NAV because the assets we were holding were trading and were very liquid and could therefore be priced very accurately. Now, in APRA's statements on retail versus wholesale, it does have a footnote on the DDO laws, but it sort of claims it hasn't materially changed the way banks are distributing to wholesalers and it hasn't materially increased wholesale participation. Absolute cods, well, I don't know where they're getting that data from, but anyone who's involved in that process knows that. Totally wrong. And so I think the idea here is not to kind of shift the $40 billion listed ASX hybrid market to the OTC market. That's what APRA was gunning for. They kind of say, oh, if we increase the minimum denominations to $500,000, it will become a wholesale market trade in the OTC domain, helped by in-star investors and we won't be so fearful of bailing in instead of this. But that's also preposterous because all that's going to happen is all the managed funds, ones we run, and all the ETFs are going to buy these OTC hybrids, just like they buy the OTC senior bonds, and as they buy now the OTC T2 bonds. There's one ETF on the ASX sub-D. It alone holds a billion in T2. So all the retail demand will just go to funds that I run and people like me run, and we'll be able to charge them fees, and we'll make out like bandits because effectively, <laughs> APRA will create 
this you know massive walled garden for us because you won't be able to trade hybrids on the ASX. I think there's more fundamental legal questions. Like, why on earth is APRA restricting mums and dads from trading in the secondary market who are making their own conscious decisions with respect to secondary trading and who aren't being influenced by new issue emissions and that brokers are trying to capture, which do exist on new issues? You know, how can APRA possibly rationalise restricting secondary trading in hybrids when they're happy to cultivate and foster secondary trading in equities, which are three times riskier? and have all the hybrid risks embedded in them as well through the dilutionary processes of any bailing of hybrids. Makes no sense. Anyway, Ying, there's enough on hybrids. Why don't you give us an update on what happened to markets in August initially, and then we'll talk about September. So August was another strong month performance-wise for Coolabar Strategies, which continue to generate robust risk-adjusted excess returns, or alpha, as they have done since June 2022. And key drivers included very primary and secondary market participation in government bonds and high-grade credit, which was juxtaposed against anodyne spread movements in the month. Amongst Coolabar's zero interest rate duration or floating rate solutions, the Longshot Credit Fund led the way with a 1.1% gross return or 0.87% to 0.9% net in August, followed by the floating rate high yield fund, which returned 0.76% gross or between 0.68 to 0.7% net. And Coolabar's lowest volatility, RBA Cash plus 1% and RBA Cash plus 1.5% products, the Smarter Money Fund and the Coolabar Short-Term Income Fund, which returned 0.56% gross or 0.51% net and 0.57% gross or 0.5% net, respectively. All of these solutions materially outperformed the RBA cash rate at 0.34%, the Osborne Bank Bill Index at 0.37%, and the Osborne Floating Rate Node Index at 0.46%. Coolbar also manages the BetaShares Active Australian Hybrids ETF product uh, with the ticker HBRD, and that returns 0.13% net of fees in August, materially outperforming the sole active major bank hybrids index, which lost 0.54% as hybrid spreads widened. Over the last 12 months to the 31st of August, the Longshot Credit Fund, which has an average A rating and a current gross running yield of 7.2%, has returned 12.1% gross or between 93 to 9.5% net. Since its launch in December 2022, the floating rate high yield fund, which has an average A rating and a current gross running yield of 8.7%, has returned 10.5% gross or between 97 to 9.8% net on a non-annualised basis. Coolabar's Cash Plus Solutions, the Smarter Money Fund and the Coolabar Short-Term Income Fund, which have average ratings of A and gross running yields of 54 and 5.5% returned 5.85% gross or 5.1% net and 6% gross or 5.1% net over the last year, respectively. The floating rate full capital structure strategy, HBRD, which is currently about half invested in Aussie bank bonds and half invested in ASX hybrids, has returned 6.1% net of fees on a franked basis over this period, outperforming the sole active major bank hybrids index, HBRD currently has an average rating of triple B and a gross running yield of 6.7%. Note that the Coolabar Short-Term Income Fund was recently launched as a dual unlisted fund and active ETF under the CHIX ticker FRNS in September and up until recently was named the Smarter Money Higher Income Fund. So Chris, why don't you tell us what's been happening with government bond yields? Yeah, Ying is happy to do so. Let's start with August. In August, uh, US 10-year government bond yields rose from 3.96% to 4.11%, which was down sharply from an intra-month peak of 4.34%. This extended a sell-off in fixed-rate bonds in the US, by which we mean higher yields, that commenced in April 2023. US 5-year government bond yields also appreciated, albeit a bit more modestly, from 4.18% to 4.25% over the same period, with an intra-month peak of uh, 4.49%. In August, the price action in risk-free fixed-rate government bonds in Australia diverged, with the 10-year yield compressing slightly from 4.06% to 4.03%, while the five-year Aussie government bond yield fell from 385 to 3.79%. After the Aussie-US 10-year government bond spread had topped out at 27 basis points in June, when Aussie interest rates were above US rates, it has fairly monotonically declined to negative nine basis points since. The relatively dovish movements in Aussie rates 
help power the performance of fixed rate bonds or interest rate duration exposures in the month of August. Now, this has been reversed somewhat as we've had a bit of a, a renewed sell-off in September that we'll come back to later. But in August, Coolabar's long-duration active composite bond fund, which is an ETF called FIXD, delivered a return of 1.1% gross or 1.03% near in the month, outperforming the Osborne Composite Bond Index return of 0.74% by 0.29% net. Yes, Chris. And over the 12 months to the 31st of August 2023, the Active Composite Bond Fund with the ticker FIXD has outperformed all known peers, returning 6.3% gross or 5.53% net compared to the Composite Bond Index's 1.78%. So fixed or FIXD has actually provided 3.76% of net alpha over the index. And since its inception in March 2017, the active Composite Bond Fund has beaten the Composite Bond Index by 1.1% per year after all retail fees and all known peers. Note that FIXD also has the highest Sharpe ratio and Sortino ratio in its sector. Yeah, you guys, investors have become increasingly interested in adding fixed rate interest rate duration exposures to their portfolios as long-term government bond yields have soared from less than 1% in 2020 to almost 4.5% today, particularly after the moves in September. The downside insurance protection afforded by duration when fixed rate bond prices rally as yields decline in anticipation of central banks cutting rates as global growth weakens is self-evidently much more attractive at these elevated yields. So Coolabar's Active Composite Bond Fund is a unique solution insofar as it fixes its interest rate duration exposure such that it mirrors that held by the Composite Bond Index. Fund managers have historically underperformed the Composite Bond Index as a result of their active interest rate duration bets. Now, Coolabar believes that the listed or exchange-traded interest rate futures or derivatives markets are immensely price efficient given their transparency and the highly competitive nature of this opportunity set, which is contested by all global bank treasury teams, macro hedge funds, and many active bond investors. So Coolbar believes that the decision to add interest rate duration to a multi-asset class portfolio is ultimately best determined by asset allocators, which is why the Active Composite Bond Fund has been designed to deliver investors with a certain and clearly defined interest rate duration profile that matches that of the main benchmark, i.e. the Composite Bond Index. Coolbar's extremely active asset selection approach is the key driver of alpha, or outperformance over the index and focuses on mispricings in the underlying government, bank and corporate bond markets, which are priced on a relatively inefficient basis in an opaque over-the-counter setting. These securities are not listed on exchanges and are characterized by highly non-transparent price discovery. As Coolabar's 11-year track record has demonstrated, exploiting this opportunity requires a very large investment team, which comprises almost 40 global staff situated in London, Sydney and Melbourne, including 12 traders slash portfolio managers and 12 analysts. In August, there were very modest movements in credit spreads. The European Benchmark Credit Default Swap, or CDS Index, for investment-grade corporate bonds, the ITRAX main, increased slightly in spread terms from 68 basis points to 70 basis points. In the US, the Benchmark CDX IG CDS Index was unchanged at 63 basis points. In Australia, the ITRAX IG CDS Index moved wider from circa 72 basis points to 78 basis points over the month in sympathy with weaker Asian CDS markets that softened a result of China's economic woes. It was a more constructive story in cash markets. In US dollars and euro, both high-grade senior and tier two financial spreads contracted over the month. In Aussie dollars, five-year major bank senior spreads declined from 90 to 89 basis points over the quarterly bank bill swap rate, known as BBSW. The major bank's five-year major bank T2 bond spreads also fell slightly from 200 basis points to 198 basis points over BBSW. In the ASX-listed additional T1 or AT1 hybrids market, spreads pushed somewhat wider over August, rising from 271 basis points to 295 basis points over BBSW as a result of new issuance from NAB, which printed a $1.25 billion seven-year hybrid. The ticker is 
NABPJ or NABPJ at a historically tight 280 basis point spread over BBSW that had limited appeal. We expect ongoing ASX hybrid issuance given tight spread levels and the fact that there are no less than seven major bank and regional bank maturities in 2024, which issuers will doubtless want to get ahead of by launching in late 2023. There was also other interesting action in the primary or new issue markets. In US dollars and euro, August was a relatively quiet month given the summer holidays, although deals that attracted our interest included a Barclays senior issue, a T2 transaction from Svenska, a senior trade from Mizuho, and a social ESG senior bond from Swedbank, amongst others. In the Aussie dollar domain, activity was much more intense with ANZ, CBA and Westpac all issuing chunky three-year senior bonds at a 75 basis point spread over BBSW. ANZ and CBA also printed five-year senior deals at 93 basis points and 95 basis points, respectively. The ANZ and CBA multi-trans transactions attracted record demand in excess of $7.5 billion. In tier two bond markets, we saw Westpac issue in Kiwi dollars, $600 million in the Kiwi market, as I mentioned, while loans came to the Aussie dollar market with a $750 million five-year issue that printed at 290 basis points over BBSW. So Chris, I want to turn back to the question of duration and government bond yields. We've seen a big further increase in yields in September. Can you explain what is going on and what that means? Yeah, Ingers, for sure. You know, what we've seen is that the 10-year risk-free discount rate in Australia and the US has surged high yet again, pushing towards 4.5% now. And that's obviously in turn pressuring risk asset classes like equities, you know, venture capital, private equity, commercial property, junk debt, by which I mean high-yield bonds, private credit. You know, they're all in the firing line when you've got you know, risk-free cash basically paying you anywhere from 4 to 6% and bank bonds paying 6 to 7%. And you know, Yingers, you know, cool about Central Case for ages has been, like years, has been we're facing an iterative multi-year battle against inflation that will see interest rates remain structurally higher for years. We said this in late 2021. We're now late 2023 and we still have the same problem. More recently, we argued that the bond market pricing in the US, 100 basis points of rate cuts for the Fed, earlier this year was absolutely codswallop, garbage, silly. And we've also more recently submitted that the expectations for steep cuts in US rates next year were far too aggressive. Well, this week, the Fed itself abandoned its own forecast for 100 basis points of cuts in 2024, slicing this estimate in half to just 50 basis points. Coupled with the persistence of stronger than expected economic growth as the consumers continue to burn through those savings buffers that Coolabar has demonstrated that they accumulated in unprecedented size during the pandemic, bond markets, with all of this in mind, have had no choice but to continue pricing in higher and higher long-term interest rates. US 10-year government bond yields have been climbing towards 4.5% with Australia's equivalent rates not far behind. So this is demonstrably bad news for all other asset classes and, of course, the current default cycle. Higher interest rates mean lower current valuations and more stress amongst weak corporate borrowers and also weak residential borrowers. Chris, with this in mind, what did you make of the performance of the new New South Wales Treasurer, Daniel Mookie, with his latest budget? Well, as you probably know, Ying, this sounds like a bit of a Dorothy Dixer because, you know, I think it's well understood I rate Mookie as Australia's finest treasurer. Uh, that is the new New South Wales Treasurer. Um, and true to form, he blew everyone out of the water. The media coverage on, on this was very poor, but the fact of the matter is that Mookie reduced radically the state's borrowing needs over the next 12 months in FY24 by an extraordinary $10.4 billion. Now, prior to the New South Wales budget, Yingers, the investment banks were speculating that New South Wales's borrowing task wouldn't actually shift meaningfully. Even after they had the budget, well, the likes of Baron Joey were saying that they were still expecting circa $30 billion. But again, Mookie blew them out of the water. He's also prudently frozen the prior Liberal government's plan to borrow almost $30 billion of extra taxpayer cash over its Ford estimates to allow the state's investment arm, T-Corp, to gamble this taxpayer money on stocks and other risky bets. So I don't think Mookie's going to restart those contributions. There's been quite a lot of speculation about when he'll restart them, but I think that they're dead as dodos, the contributions, and I think he's going to wait until the state is well and truly back in the black, and by that I mean a proper surplus after accounting for CapEx. It is true that the new treasurer is not 
yet revealed what he intends to do with the $16 billion sitting in equities and other very risky asset classes in the state's debt retirement fund, which we've talked a lot about, which we believe should be expeditiously applied to its intended legislative purpose. And that, of course, folks, is the uh, aggressive reduction of gross government debt with the specific legislative goals of protecting the AAA rating, which, of course, they lost in December 2020 from S&P, and reducing the cost of the interest repayments on that debt, which, of course, multiplied by many factors. So one assumes that Mr. Mookie will have to figure this out in due course. That is what he's going to do with the $16 billion of the debt retirement fund. I have no doubt that he's facing furious opposition from those liberal pollies who were keen to squander the money. Um, I think they'll eager to blow up that debt retirement fund by punting it in equities and other risky asset classes and borrowing another $30 billion to put into TCOP's funds so TCOP could be paid management fees, so TCOP staff, which... Uh, last time we checked, earned about 300 grand a year on average across the 184 staff. Could be well paid, but that's not necessarily a good use of public money. The interesting thing is that New South Wales government bond spreads meaningfully compressed relative to other states following the New South Wales budget as investors reacted to the sharp diminution in the supply of debt over the next 12 months. Although we don't actually have any portfolio exposures to New South Wales bonds, our chief macro strategist, KD, summed up the budget as, quote, Mookie delivering on his election promises while embarking on fiscal repair and KD calls a spade a spade as we all know he was the mother trucker who in December 2021 in the Bar's infamous Hunger Games presentations was delivering detailed 50 slide decks on why the Fed was going to a cash rate of 5 to 6%. It was at zero at the time. And while the RBA was going to 4 to 5, it was also near zero at the time. Of course, the RBA is at 4.1, the Fed's at 5.25 to 5.5. And the issue with the RBA is they're still behind the eight ball. There's just no doubt about that. You know, look, the RBNZ, they're at 5.5, potentially going higher. The Canadians are at 5. Again, with the risk they go higher, we've seen a um, recent resurgence in Canadian inflation. The Brits are heading towards you know, the mid to high fives. Even uh, the Europeans are now sitting at around 4.5. So Australia's the odd man out. We've got as bad wage and core consumer price inflation as the rest of the world. We've arguably got significantly worse wage growth, less productivity, also known as unit labour costs, which are running at 7.5% year on year. And so this inflation crisis is going to be a multi-year challenge, unfortunately. High rates for long, for the foreseeable future at least. And that, in our view, means you should be very, very liquid. You want to retain the optionality to maximize your liquidity you want to absolutely lock and load those very high cash interest rates on deposits on government bonds and on bank bonds with that folks um we'll have to call it quits uh, i'm currently in the us and it's uh, uh right now 1 30 a.m so i love you and leave you and you guys thank you for your company appreciate your time podcast does not provide financial advice. It is not an invitation to invest in any financial product and the information in it should not be relied on for any decisions. All views expressed represent the personal opinions of the speaker and do not represent the view of any other party. If this recording contains reference to any financial products, that reference does not constitute advice or a recommendation and should not be relied upon. Listeners in Australia are encouraged to visit the moneysmart.gov.au website to obtain information regarding financial advice and investments.